If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today, I welcome to the show Jonathan Mehar Zayas. He's a self-described queer Latinx millennial and a nonprofit strategist dedicated to addressing equity issues, building capacity, engaging the community, motivating new impact leaders, and getting stuff done. Jonathan is the owner and chief strategist at Equity Warrior Strategies, a consulting company that provides leadership development, community engagement, and equity strategy services to the social impact sector. He serves on the AFP, that's the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Global Board of Directors, and was named Outstanding Fundraising Professional by AFP in 2019. Jonathan joined AFP at the very beginning of his career, serving as a communication intern for the AFP New York Genesee Valley Chapter. When he moved to Albany for graduate school, he joined the Hudson Mohawk Chapter, where he quickly became the chapter president, making him one of the youngest chapter presidents in AFP history. He was also named Hispanic Executive Next Gen 30 Under 30 Latinx Leaders. Jonathan earned his Master's of Social Work and Master's of Public Administration degrees at the University of Albany and his Bachelor's degree in Religion, Linguistics, and Gender Studies from the University of Rochester. In November of 2021, He earned his CFRE credential, that's Certified Fundraising Executive credential, and this January, he earned his credential as a Certified Diversity Professional. Obviously, Jonathan is an overachiever, and the world is better for it. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Tammy. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and it's great to catch up. Like, it's been a while, so I'm glad that we're having the chance to connect again. Yeah, me too. It has been a while, too long. Let me start just by congratulating you. It's so awesome. Equity Warrior Strategies. What is an equity warrior and how can I be one? Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was just mentioning it's nervous and exciting to go on your own at the same time as well. But prior to this, I always self-proclaimed myself as an equity warrior over the years. Just part of my personal, like, how do I commit it? And people really liked it. So I was like, let me 
embrace that for my name brand. So I identify an equity warrior as someone who fights for change, tackles oppression and advances equity. So that can show up in many different ways too as well. The key thing that I want to point out too is someone who takes action. It's not just advocating. It's not just standing as an ally. It's someone who actually takes action to tackle against oppressive status quo and make things better for everyone. So that's how I see equity warrior. I love it. And it's such a powerful like when I think about it, I just kind of sit up straighter. I just feel such a source of pride and purpose. So why was it important for you to start this company? Yeah, so I left my full-time nonprofit job after like 11 years working full-time for nonprofits in the sector. And I realized by the age of 31, I had left three nonprofit jobs due to negative experiences without something lined up. Like it got to the point where I was like, I needed a change. And then when it, the third time happened too as well, you're like, yeah, I think I need to kind of reevaluate some things. And yeah, for me, it was taking control of my own path or figuring out where I was best utilized in the space to embrace my talents, be my authentic self and embrace what it is too as well. So I did leave my job and took a little bit to kind of figure it out, but like, even after interviewing with so many jobs, so many organizations are either overwhelmed or stressed or really not um, in this kind of freeze mode of like not moving forward with a lot of change. A lot of the pay was inadequate. A lot of the workload expectations were overwhelming too. The culture needed a lot of work as well. And uh, work towards equity was performative or just a commitment. It wasn't actually doing something too as well. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing and figure out my old path, at least for right now, and what does that look like too? And I think the most exciting realization for me out of all of this was realizing, and I'm sure you get this too as well, is sometimes the best impact we have is supporting others who are in the sector doing the great work too as well. I started adjunct teaching and the inspiration I give to my students where I'm giving them ideas and strategies to go out and do their own thing is gave me a little bit more joy and excitement than necessarily doing the work myself. So that's what led me today and led me to kind of figure out a space where I can provide support, resources, education to people who want to be equitable change makers. I love that. I think you're right. I mean, sometimes working in the nonprofit sector, being an employee of a nonprofit, especially in the field of fundraising, can feel really lonely. And I love that you've gone out on your own. I did the same full time two years ago. But going out and being the support, the mentor, the trainer, the expert, the consultant that I needed, and I can see that you're doing that. There is a lot of great and much needed conversation about racial equity in the sector now. How can we as nonprofits also accelerate acceptance, inclusion, and equity of the LGBTQ community in our workforce and on our boards and, and in our donor ranks and volunteer ranks? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is just acknowledgement that the issues are there. I think we have to kind of like, you can't change anything unless you name it actually as well. So I think for us to, even though, and I think sometimes it's harder in the nonprofit space because we're coming in with all good intentions. So we're coming in and we're addressing the world's problems. We're changing things. We're connecting resources. So we're like, we don't have problems. We want to be do-gooders in the world. But like we're Absolutely. there to change the world. We're doing that too. And sometimes though, I feel some folks ignore the big pressing issues, unfortunately, and have to realize like they're there. So 
I think first we have to acknowledge that they're there. They're in our organizations, they're ingrained, they're part of who we are. And I think also then once we acknowledge that too, we need to stop and look more inward than outward. Sometimes many people see this issue and they're like, well, we don't find the right people or we just need more diversity of donors or the things that we're doing just better to other places. And I think it's like a good time for organizations and leaders to like look inside and assess themselves and say like, okay, what? is going on internally first in our policies, in our culture, our program operations, the community engagement, our board governance, and really step back and say, hey, maybe there are some things that we just don't know about that we're perpetuating and kind of what that is. And once you identify and assess those, figure out how you fix those problems or you heal any trauma that you caused and focus on creating outcomes. Like I think sometimes too, in any type of work, like we always talk about focusing on the impact of where we're going to achieve and where we're heading. You look at strategic plans, we focus on goals, we focus on measurable outputs. Yet sometimes in the racial equity space and the LGBT equity space too, we just think about the uncomfortable conversations we're going to have and the commitments we have, but we don't actually look at where we're heading. I'd love to get people visionary of like, oh, I want to create an organization where I can bring my husband to any work event and it, there we're comfortable in that sense too, or any person of color is not experienced a microaggression or any person with a disability has access to be able to thrive in their job, regardless of unintentioned systems put in as well. So I think focusing on what the outcomes you want and then measuring towards that too, as well, will actually feel like you're actually moving forward and focusing on where you want to be instead of how uncomfortable you will be right at the moment. I think that that first step you describe, looking inward, I mean, there's some complexity to unpacking that, right? First of all, we have blinders or we have our own biases and we see things through our own experience. And so if we don't identify as a person of color or someone in the LGBTQ community, then there's things we just don't see, right? And even if we're like the most intentioned, like they have the best heart and want to see them. I think that's why it's so important that someone like you can come in and help facilitate those conversations, help us to really do that deep work of looking inward. And that cannot be done in a vacuum. And I think too, and way better than I, I think that there's a lot of fear. Like I'm being asked for my point of view to share, or being asked to share my experiences as someone who is in the, one of these communities. And I'm afraid if I speak out, there'll be negative repercussions, that people will judge me, that people will get defensive. How do you create a space for those inward evaluations, those assessments to take place in such a way that there can be authenticity and truth? That's tough. Oh, super tough, but super crucial. And and that's the experiences we want out for the people we serve. And that's the experience we want for every donor interaction we have. Like we focus on creating that for our donors, yet sometimes we take advantage of our own staff and people and sometimes volunteers and kind of focus on their more of a tool than they are actually a person and kind of focusing on what it is. So yes. unfortunately, yeah. So, you know, what really big to think about too is the term called psychological safety. It's essentially creating safe spaces for people to be their authentic selves, but also to feel comfortable enough to not 
worry about mistakes. Mistakes are inevitable. There's research that was done that the most successful teams are the teams that make the most mistakes because they're actually reporting on their mistakes and learning from them and how they grow as well. And we have to recognize this in this work too, is like there's so much impression. It is so ingrained into everything too, that like you can't possibly know everything at the moment as well. So like acknowledging that we're going to make mistakes along the time too. And we have to learn how to, one, learn to apologize when we make a mistake by ways to heal if we had intended, unintended negative impact and then change behaviors and move forward. So think about how to create that as well. And that can arrive in so many different ways for individuals that in, can include training, that include facilitated conversations, mediations, coaching and support. So many different ways that an organization can think about how to support their employees at their own journeys of what that looks like too, and create that psychological safety for everyone. Yeah. On the podcast previously, I had an, another author. Her name is Shantara McBride. I don't know if you know Shantara. She spoke at AFP Lead. Oh, yeah. This past year. Yeah. She was fantastic. One of the superstars there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have so many notes from her sessions too. She was great. Yes. And her brilliant book, Courageous Discomfort. And she really talks about how to have those uncomfortable conversations and how to give one another grace. To your point, we're going to make mistakes and we need to coach one another. We need to say, like, if, if I say something that is offensive or hurtful to you unintentionally or intentionally, we need to have the space where you can say, Tammy, I want to share how that landed with me. When you said this, I felt that. Yeah, it's deep work. It's work I don't think can be rushed. How do you know when you're working with nonprofits, social profits, impact organizations, and you're doing this assessment, you're working with them to have those courageous conversations and to create spaces where people can apologize, where they can learn, and where healing can take place. How do you know when enough healing and that inward assessment is complete enough that you can help guide them or facilitate that conversation toward the future they want to create? Because you can't build something new. You can't build a house on a broken foundation. It's obviously hard to measure because yeah. like it's about our feelings and internally and our society inherently devalues anything that we can't measure. So it's hard, but I think it comes from various different signs as well. I had a great coach that I implement to think about. You never can hold someone else accountable. You can only hold them in compliance. So when someone really is to a point when they feel I'm accountable for my own actions and my own learning and healing, that's what's going to drive that as well. And I think that acknowledgement from people helps know that they're ready to move on. I think some people are like, I made a commitment or I've seen individuals of privileged identities to marginalize folks. Well, just tell me what to do. Tell me what's going on. And for some of us, we're like, well, here's the learning. Here's that too as well. And for them, it's not them try to dismiss it. It's showing a discomfort in the process. So they're not ready for it too as well. But when they're a point where you're like, you know what? I did this. I have to own my impact. And I am ready to move forward. Then you show some significant signs of like ready to think about, oh, I'm ready to heal or I'm ready to think about what's next as well. It's when the person, you know, kind of focuses on what that could be. And I think also you create environments where that person who is not ready for change is 
uh, outsider. And not to exclude anyone too as well, but really think about so many times we create spaces and the outsiders are the people pushing for change. Like I've been there. We should be there. We're heading this way. And the organization like, well, we're not ready for that. We're not ready for a culture. I was like, well, because these people aren't ready. I was like, well, push them along. Like, why are you sacrificing my own psychological safety and authenticity, the opportunity to make equity and impact? Because someone isn't ready, like that person who's not ready should feel like they need to be motivated and supported to catch up and build on that too, rather than ostracizing so many individuals who are like, this is messed up and I want change and I want to build on that too. And I think a lot of the trends you see with staff retention right now are seeing that. Like people, we don't want to deal with that anymore. I'm not going to go to the org and like, you're not ready. Okay, great. I'm going to go somewhere who is ready, or I'm going to keep my own mental health as a priority for my sake, because your organization is still enrooted in all of this too. And it does take time, but I think organizations need to realize what are the opportunity costs that you're losing out on great talent, losing out on engaging great communities. And even so, eventually, I think funders, government agencies, and donors see the lack of progress for some organizations and see that as a hindrance and not wanting to invest their support and time as well. Yeah. So when an organization really wants to take this on, where does it typically start? Like, what's the most effective approach? Does it start at the executive leadership team? A lot of organizations have formed inclusive diversity, equity, access committees comprised of staff members from different functional areas to come together and lead that effort. Where do you see it best take root at its core, knowing it has to expand agency-wide? It depends on the organization, but leadership buy-in is probably the most crucial aspect of it too. And that's not leadership buy-in of the head staff, but the board as well. I think sometimes we often forget how much influence the board has on an organization. And we, especially as fundraisers, we're like, those are people getting the connections for us and the money in that sense too. Like they're just there to do that, where they're the ones holding the executive director and the chief leadership team accountable. And if they don't have buy-in to be like, this is important, or this is building on that, I think that's harder. I think that's definitely harder, but I think it sometimes takes place in a really motivated staff member. It takes place in a supporter coming in and saying, hey, you should really do this and build on that. So a lot of different people can help start that process too. I think it's where collectively as an organization, it's made as a commitment, as a priority, or like we're going to actually do this too. And then once it's a commitment, and how is it integrated into everything we're already doing? I think that's another failure as well. Sometimes we put fundraising off to the side. Like we're just like, okay, we're going to do our thing. And then you just tell us when we're doing a wrong, or you just tell us when we're doing something good as well. Same with fundraising. Like we put them off to the side and you're like, just give us money when you're ready. And that sense, so I think the really integration into so many aspects of the agency in really putting it with people who are more focused on impact and future focus too then uh, unfortunately where I see it too, and putting it in the compliance side of things, we put DEI in compliance and sometimes that protects the organization more than it protects the individuals that we're looking at. And sometimes efforts that are rooted in good intentions that are in compliance or human resources often fall back to the oppressive practices of an organization rather than actually 
making change and moving things forward. So sometimes leading it with individuals who are ready for change or thinking future focus, who are ready to embrace the toughness of the work, but really excited about the impact are more likely going to do that and be successful than necessarily the individuals who are all about like, okay, here's ways that we're supporting our employees, but really making sure they follow the rules of the work. Yeah. And I suspect when you have this group of champions that are driving this and pulling some people along, it's important for the organization to commit resources to the effort, like time, financial resources. What do you see are the most important tools or resources that an organization needs to commit to really driving equity and inclusion and not in like a checkbox, like we're going through the motions kind of way, but in a real commitment kind of way? Yeah, I think it needs to be in the fundraising case for support. We have those case for supports of why to give to the organization and the impact we want to create is equity integrated in that case for support. Like you have this food pantry or you have this school or the healthcare facility. Is it integrated in all that too as well? Because then it's not seen as a side off as again, it's integrated in all that as well. So when you're having conversations with individuals and funders, you're like, this is important and this is how we're advancing our mission. And it's integrated in that too. Because then that leads to more resources and more impact and more engagement for people to support your efforts and keep it going forward. So I think integrating it in the case for support too as well, it looks differently for each organization, but just staff and board leads to kind of figure out what that looks like. Again, people who are committed to change, what does that look like too? And people who are really connected well with the executive team, especially the, the executive director or the president and the CEO. Because sometimes we put DI underneath other staff members or in the corner or associate in because we don't have the budget for that, but we're really putting it away. So it's not actually being invested in. So I think some staff leads focused on what it is. I think it really needs to engage your community really well. This process is all about community engagement and community building. So you can't say, oh, we're committed to helping everyone if you don't include everyone in the process. <laughs> so yeah. What does that look like? Is that committees, employee resource groups or affinity groups are a big thing right now too as well. And that takes time. So like, how are you supporting those individuals who are engaging with that too, to cultivate that talent as well? Community partnerships with different stakeholders because our organizations can't do everything. So how are we working and champion or supporting other organizations too? So a really strong community sense of building of like, we're all in this together. We're all in this journey. Some of us, what comes easier than others, or we have navigates, but we're all focused on the same end goal is advancing as much equity for our mission as possible. So how are we building and engaging our community so that everyone feels like they're part of the process to move forward? Yeah, I love that. And I love that you're really saying this is an external focus and an internal focus. So essentially, it's about embracing equity and inclusion as a core value. Easy. Yeah. I think because the evolution we started as diversity, like we need more diverse staff, we need more diverse donors. And then, so that puts it in one area, but like so many other aspects that you might have not identified in the assessment process too, like could be part of it. For example, my last organization, we were a mental health organization and our database wasn't helpful for LGBT individuals. Like it didn't have pronouns. It didn't 
have people have their preferred name and not their dead names. It had specific gender boxes. That was our database system too, as well. And it's not like we think of where the IT system is at the moment, integrated into equity efforts too as well. But so many times people would schedule an appointment and they'd use the wrong name or they'd misgender someone too, or even billing codes to insurance companies. They mix up everything. And so many times that shows up in our fundraising CRMs of sending misinformation. And that's affects the experience. And then it's how psychologically safe people feel going to your organization and being part of your community. And then people are dismissed from that and like not likely to go back to you or have a traumatic experience. So you have to think about all the different ways that someone can experience your organization and where those potential areas for exclusion or inequities can show up. And that really is where you have to do it as well. It's a lot of work, but think of the great impact that it's going to make when you're thinking about all these great things and how you can collectively come together on it. Wow. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. All right. So you just said so much. I've got popcorn going off in my brain, which is exciting. I love that. So a couple things. So first of all, having the correct, the preferred pronoun in the database. And I know I've heard another friend, uh, Clay Buck, talk about salutations. He and his husband get mailings that are just completely screwed up, right? Because Mm -hmm. systems aren't prepared to say Mr. and Mr. And then you talked about preferred pronouns. I'm assuming the best way to know what those preferences are is to ask. Completely. Just ask. And I will say, sometimes we use preferred. I like to say, there are my pronouns. Like (laughs) you say that too as well. When you say preferred, you're like, oh, well, I don't have to use them. You just prefer them. No, they're mandatory. And actually using their pronouns. It is there's research that's done for young trans individuals that using the pronouns as suicide prevention because they're so likely for suicide. So you have to think too, when you're misgendered constantly and you finally, you use the incorrect pronoun, you're adding to complexities of layers on that. So using the correct ones, you might be helping contribute to a positive mental health impact. I am always upfront with them, but just asking, say like, they're mine are you comfortable sharing yours and kind of building on what that looks like is a great way to just start off that conversation and also when you make a mistake don't make it a big thing i think sometimes people over it like oh my gosh it's that world is ending and i was like you're making this bigger some people misgender pets all the time 
And we instantly switch right away. Like, oh, your dog, what a beautiful little girl. I was like, no, my dog's a boy. I'm like, oh, he's great. Like they just switch instantly. And why don't we do that with people? Yeah, they care, but at the same time too, lives are at stake. I like to also say to really have a cultural humility approach. Like we can't learn everything about every same type of individual possible. That's not feasible. As a social worker, I learned in school, really like have a cultural humility approach. So going, not judging, not assuming that you know anyone too, but being as respectful as possible and kind of learning uh, you're there to meet an individual person and their individual person has a lot of identities and they may have shaped that person's identities, but it's not the same for everyone. So meeting people where they're at, trying to connect and have this approach where I'm like trying to learn that too as well. And we, we do this for donors a lot to learn their wishes and their understanding, but why aren't we doing this in a way to focus on equity? Because that's the translatable skills that fundraisers have to then focus on how we can be great, equitable change makers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a natural extension of mm-hmm. that getting related and being in relationship. Sure, fine. Yeah. Amazing. You said another phrase that was new to me, and I am a learner. And mm-hmm. like most of our listeners, like we want to do good. Like Dr. Maya Angelou said, when you know better, do better. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm all about that. You used the phrase preferred name versus dead name. Yeah. Tell me, what is that? Yeah. So for individuals who are transgender or non-binary, you're always supposed to use the name that they identify with and the gender that they're working to as well. I think it's rooted in our curiosity to figure things out, which sometimes gets people in trouble. You want to figure out, well, what was your name before? Like, what were you before born at or you assigned that to as well? And that's your dead name. And that can be so traumatic for some people to hear that they are trying to move away from that identity. That identity was given to them too, but that's not who they identify with as well. And sometimes people who don't understand that are so focused on like, well, what you were before? Because like, they're trying to make sense of the world, but like what they have to do is just focus on the person that right now. And so many times we do that. Like we're trying to be like, oh, it's us trying to understand things, but inherently we're causing more harm trying to understand too. We don't really need to understand. We just need to show respect and inclusivity. So focusing on someone's full name now as I identify is the preferred way to kind of be inclusive and welcoming, especially for our trans and non-binary siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Intuitively, that makes perfect sense. I can't even imagine trying to dig into that being so intrusive and disrespectful, but I had never heard it referred to as a dead name. But now, thank you for explaining that. It makes perfect, perfect logic. You mentioned you talked a bit about culture and about how people leave organizations. I know in the sector right now, we're really struggling to attract and retain top talent, especially good fundraisers and good communications professionals. It feels like there's a shortage. I don't know about you, but I have clients who just feel desperate to fill positions because They're spreading themselves and their teams so thin. It's really having a negative impact. I have witnessed firsthand how organizational culture can make or break your ability to win the talent war. I mean, even just go on Glassdoor and see what people are saying, right? People do that as they're interviewing. So I believe equity and inclusion have a huge impact on culture. Talk to us about that and as it relates to talent retention and acquisition, especially. Uh, I think what's that saying? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Breakfast wrecker. 
culture shapes everything. Now that we're kind of prioritizing mental health and how we feel, culture is how we feel about organizations too as well. So you can have the best policies, you can have the best recruiters come in, go through the best training, but if the culture to really support an environment where people feel psychologically safe to be their authentic selves and grow, it's not going to grow. And I learned a great quote from the Ethical Rainmaker podcast. It's like, your organizational culture is only as good as the worst behavior it tolerates. Mm. Um, and that hit deep for me. It's like, of course, when we're an organization, let's focus on the best people. Let's promote what we're doing well. Like, we don't want to talk about that too. But then realizing too, like just the accountability that we have for people who are negatively impacting the culture. And if we don't do anything to address that, how harmful that could be to so many other places like, is part of it too, as well. I was doing some change management work for organizations and they asked their employees what they wanted for change and they wanted more benefits and more money and stuff like that too. But a big thing was like, they want bad apples to be held accountable. And sometimes we have in our organizations, like we can't admit that something bad happened. So we try to dismiss it as a way that they're not actually bad, but that perpetuates a culture. And then you're stuck with the bad apples because the good apples like, well, if you're going to tolerate this person, I'm going to go somewhere where there's best. So I think that plays into it as well, how inclusive and safe people are too, how performative and trust building it is too. So you see a lot of people who made statements in the last couple of years, but where are the action follow-ups with the statements in that sense? Like where is the connections are you focusing on the equity work that you're doing? You're not seeing that. So you're not building that trust. And I think part, an unfortunate part about culture is sometimes we put nonprofit leaders on pedestals so many times that we can't make mistakes because if we make mistakes, a donor won't give to us or this will look bad for us. Even when we do make mistakes, the culture is so adverse to apologizing for it too that then you're like, well, if you just said you're sorry and you're growing, like I would have connected way more with you and shown that you're actually focusing on this than you pretending, I'm sorry you felt this way or I'm sorry that happened to you. I was like, okay, great. But you contributed to that. Yeah. You could have just said that. So leaders need to really, I'm not saying go out and admit all the faults of your organization, but really understand that like you played a part in many of this. And if you want a good culture where people feel safe enough to make mistakes, you need to feel safe enough to make a mistake yourself. And say, how are you make a mistake? How are you healing from that? And how are you moving forward? So definitely a great impactful way to really think about how it's shaping why some fundraisers and communication professionals aren't leaving. And we're the best relationship builders in the organization. So we know what it takes to build a good relationship. So if you're not building it with us, we're the ones that are like, okay, well, we're over judging you probably on how well you're building the relationship. So if you're not doing it with us, then it's going to have a tremendous impact on whether or not we stay or not. Yeah. There's so much to learn and just to be open to ask questions. What are some of the resources you might recommend to people inside organizations who want to further equity, who want to really further inclusiveness? I think looking up some assessments first to figure out where you have gaps to as well. So there are some great resource hubs that exist. I know when I worked at my community foundation, I organized a resource hub for that. Looking at people who want to support you, where are some resources where some assessments can take up as well. The Building Movement organization that's based in Boston has a lot of great resources too. There's a website called Racial Equity Tools that has a lot of great tools and resources to work on. And then from those assessments, identifying where else do you need to, what to build on that. 
as well. And I think sometimes too, bringing in outside help is really helpful, but sometimes doing an assessment of the talent and knowledge you have internally and just compensating people for that work could be so much more impactful. There's so many times when I was an employee and I was like, you paid this much for a consultant to come in and you could have just gave me a little bit more money and I could have done that just as well in that sense. And obviously as a consultant now, that's a weird thing to say. However, do an assessment of your internal because there's so many great resources you might have that could be a part of it too. I learn a lot on Instagram, actually. Like that's my platform that I use. So I look at followers who identified from communities that I'm not a part of and learn from it. I have to share you, I just saw this post about 10 awesome disability focused TED Talks you can listen to, to how you can address ableism in your organization. And I learned so much from that, that you're like, oh, so find the spaces that you're already got and center those voices and learn from them of how you could identify some great resources and learnings that you might've not built on as well. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. And we'll include some links in the show notes so that folks can easily access those and continue the learning journey. Love it. So Jonathan, you and I are both speaking at AFP International Conference in New Orleans in a few weeks. So excited. Yeah. Can't, I've never been to New Orleans, so I'm really excited. So yeah. What is My it? husband's coming along. That's the perk of him coming along to things. He's coming along for the first few days. Well, maybe I'll get to meet him. Maybe. Yeah. I would love well. that. Although I'm the extroverted person. He's like, you're all talking all the time. I was like, yeah, that's a great <laughs> part. But yeah, I love to connect him with impressive people. Fantastic. I'm so excited about your topic there, how to create an integrated and inclusive development and communications plan. Now, I don't want to steal your thunder, but can you give us a little sneak peek about maybe some of the actionable ideas and maybe even just some additional context about why this is such a hot topic? Sure. So the most confident I ever felt as a fundraiser is when I had a comprehensive communications plan, a plan that outlined the year that had my organization goals, the messaging, had my capacity, had the impact I was doing and the channels I was using was probably the most helpful that I've ever been as well. And I'm going to, I'll share stories and examples during the session too in building on that. So we're walking you through the steps of how we've created inclusive communications plan as well. And then really thinking about too, is like, actually it's doing it with my old boss and both of us are talking about really case study examples of where we've identified opportunities to really integrate development and communications throughout the organization and the impact that it's had as well. So obviously in the fundraising space, sometimes there's still this shift between development and communications. So figuring out how do they work together is super important too as well. But we're I think about some examples of how do you integrate that with programs? How do you work with your finance team? as well, because I think when fundraisers and communication professionals aren't integrated in the organization, they feel less valued and then they feel ostracized and they're like more likely to leave. So the more that you can identify the opportunities to work together with other aspects in your organization, the more likely you're going to stay successful and feel like the impact that you have as well. So hopefully it's not just leading to good communication, but leading to better fundraiser retention as well. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm so happy I'm not speaking opposite of you. (laughs) So this has been amazing, Jonathan. Thank you so very much. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire, insightful questions to provide just a little extra value for our listeners. Are Mm -hmm. you game? Oh, of course. Let's go. All right, (laughs) let's go. First one, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? 
So not so much advice, but just actually have it behind me. First icon, P2016 in Boston, Kofi Annan spoke. Oh, I remember. An African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And that has shaped every way I've approached to fundraising, communications, equity work. Because before that, I was like, I got to do everything on my own. Now I'm like, oh, community that I build around me and the community we make sure is inclusive as possible, the more impact we're going to have. So that's how I embrace that proverb. Beautiful. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? For anyone in fundraising philanthropy, Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva is like, he has two versions of it. I've listened to both too. I think one, so opening of like personal experience that I related to as well as being Phoenix and connecting in the field as well, but just like honest conversations that haven't thought about of like, oh yeah, sometimes philanthropy perpetuates harm. And he does it in such a way of like embracing indigenous wisdom or like how can money be medicine more than it is harmful and how we embrace philanthropy in a way to heal our world. So definitely highly recommend if you haven't read or listened to it. We'll definitely include links in the show notes to that one. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? Yeah, I think inclusive communication skills, so meeting people where you're at, connecting as well. I think an adaptability of like just being changes the only constant in our fields. How can you adapt to what's around you and what makes sense? Focus on that as well. And I think I call it organizing, but like uh, organizing or community building or project management, like they're all similar. You got to cultivate a community. You got to cultivate a team. You got to work on that too as well. And it's a, like, you can't be a solo fundraiser on your own and be as effective as possible. It may work for some people, but for most of them, the ability to cultivate and engage and utilize a team of people, staff and volunteers is super important for you to kind of build on that. And that's what makes us good community builders and good DI folks, because that's at the core of DI. Yeah, I love that. And I know we've all seen where you have that lone ranger, very independent person who does it all and then they leave and the organization is so vulnerable like what do we do now right because mm-hmm. we've not built that community that can rally yeah. and come together and keep things moving forward mm. sure, sure. so good what's your favorite fundraising application or tool a comprehensive crm system a crm that has everything like i want to when they don't when they read your email when they volunteered like especially in a small shop space to integrate, the more the better anytime I fundraise. The CRM system is where I live all the time. (laughs) Yeah, so good. What's your favorite nonprofit conference and why? So obviously AFB Icon, not to just say that I'm a global board member, I need to promote that, but it truly is. And not just what I learned, just the community that you walk away and you feel like you're not on your own. Like it's a great reinforcer to do that too. And I will say, APIKN, especially for folks with marginalized identities who are throughout the country and in communities where there's not a lot of us at diversity and fundraisers, ICON is a great connection tool to connect with so many other spaces that we host affinity groups and connecting. Like it's such a great building opportunity that you're like, oh yeah, like I might be the only queer fundraiser in my area, but like I just met 20 of them in one room together and now I get to connect with them as well. So it's a great community connection tool that I think is so important. Fabulous. Last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, 
what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession? Focus on your strengths. Like, I think sometimes we focus on what makes us the most money or what organizations value the most. And sometimes that doesn't align with who we are as people and what we're really good at. So I know, for example, it's funny, I'm not actually intuitively a good relationship builder. Not that I'm not a good relationship builder, but my, I get motivated by projects and impact and ideas that sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, it was this person's birthday. I meant to say that. Like, and that's so important for relationship building too. So like I have tools to organize that, but like being a major guest officer, it wasn't actually like a good fit for me in some ways. And so many people would focus like, oh, well, you have to do that. That's where the money is. And instead, if I just focused on communications and grant writing and strategy work, I felt more at home. I felt embraced and I was making the support and resources I need to as well. We're not good at everything, focusing on what you are good at and surrounding yourself with people that can support the areas you aren't as best at. Very good. Well, Jonathan, this has been amazing. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. It's a a pleasure and excitement to talk to you. I was very honored to get the invite and I can't wait to see you in a few weeks in New Orleans. Agreed. Detroit is covered in a blanket of ice as we speak. Oh my gosh. I have to shovel after. So that's not my excitement. (laughs) If you want to learn more about Jonathan or his company, Equity Warrior Strategies, or follow him on social media, we've included links to his handles in the show notes, as well as links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, and keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast And subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars 
including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.